love, social convention, gender roles, and religion. Charlotte Bronte's most famous novel challenges ideas on all these topics, and we are here to discuss it. I'm Charlene. And I'm Mike. And this is Jane Eyre Files. Chapter 14. I am not a general philanthropist. Hello, husband. Hello, you neophyte. <laughs> well, not, not so true anymore. I'm a little older now. Mm. But I uh, love it when you uh, pick these words that Mr. Rochester uh, uses. Oh, we're getting plenty of them this mm -hmm. chapter. I, I had several to choose from, and I thought I'd go with one that sometimes could relate to. I mean, I, I don't want to keep harping on it like we do on this show, but I am a little older than you. And Just I've, a little. Yeah, and I've probably done a lot of traveling. You've... Well, I've, I've been a little uh, more worldwide, more international travel. True. You've probably <laughs> gone further if you add up all your trips to England, but you keep going back to England, whereas I've been... Oh, I've been to the Philippines and oh, that's uh, true. Poland. That's true. But uh, yeah. So like I said, this is, this, this is an interesting chapter, I think. It's just Rochester heavy. Yeah. We have a lot know, of backstory. Well, a... Maybe we don't quite understand what the story is, but... We get hints. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about Mr. Rochester and a lot of discussion for Mr. Rochester because he's just yapping. <laughs> just absolutely yapping. Yes, so let's see what Sparknotes has to say about this chapter with their summary. Jane sees little of Rochester during his first days at Thornfield. One night, however, in his after-dinner mood, Rochester sends for Jane and Adele. He gives Adele the present she has been anxiously awaiting, and while Adele plays, Rochester is uncharacteristically chatty with Jane. When Rochester asks Jane whether she thinks him handsome, she answers no, without thinking, and from Rochester's voluble reaction, Jane concludes that he is slightly drunk. Rochester's command that she converse with him makes Jane feel awkward, especially because he goes on to argue that her relationship to him is not one of servitude. Their conversation turns to the concepts of sin, forgiveness, and redemption. When Adele mentions her mother, Jane is intrigued, and Rochester promises to explain more about the situation on a further occasion. Yeah, I feel like Sparkness does a pretty good job of summarizing this, because as I read it, it's just, it's just a lot of dialogue. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like there were some moments where I'm just like, am I getting the gist of all of this? Is it going over my head? And this is where I'm glad, again... I'm glad that I'm rereading this for the first time in five yeah. years so that I can kind of pick up things. There's definitely a lot of foreshadowing. Definitely. Like you you know that something there's something heavy on his head and we don't know what it is. And of mm -hmm. course, now you'll find out later. And so now I'm, I'm reading this character a lot differently than I did five years ago. Yeah, because then when you do read those lines that are he's hinting at something, you know exactly what he's talking about. And that's fun for the reader, I think. Yeah, he's very brutish and, and whatnot. But now you're starting to see what Jane could see in him. Mm -hmm. I'm still not quite really totally sold on what Rochester sees in Jane at this point. Like what would he, what, what, what he, hmm. would he have seen of her other than just, okay, she speaks another language, plays a little piano. <laughs> like, you know, he's also yeah. half his age. Oh, well, okay. Well, we should get into that uh, a little bit later. Uh, this, this chapter just first begins with Jane kind of living her life at Thornfield and noticing that how Mr. Rochester is around her sometimes he acknowledged my presence sometimes not his changes of mood did not offend me because i saw that i had nothing to do with their alteration 
So she sees that he can be a little abrupt and rude and then also very kind and uh, welcoming and she's not bothered by it at all, which I find funny because if I were in her position, I'd feel a little hurt or confused or maybe think that I did something wrong. Like even now, if I'm if I'm at work and somebody has, just passes me by, I'm like, oh, shoot, did I did, did I do something mm, wrong? <laughs> that's on you, though. Um, I know yeah. it's it's not it's not a healthy way to think. So. Sure, sure. Kudos to Jane because she's definitely stronger minded than I am. But at you times. think he's kind and welcoming? That's interesting because I feel like. It's a well, very stern like, form of being kind and welcoming, but yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that sometimes he can he can be nice and ask inquire after her day or something. Not in this conversation that they mm-hmm. have in the library. Yeah. But well. Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, it's it. The point you were making about Jane is is pretty solid, though. Is like I feel like you're seeing a lot of growth and maturity from her. You know, she's still so young, and yet she's realizing, yeah. hey, don't take it personal. Yeah, you know whether you want to blame it on alcohol, which, <laughs> believe me, that that could be the cause of a lot of issues. But um, yeah, we're seeing if she sees him in a certain light that we don't see him in, then I think we're kind of like we're, we're following her lead. Mm-hmm. If or you're reading, believe what she yeah, what she's like if, telling if, you, us. if you're reading that because sometimes when you're re- you're reading this and you're just like he is kind of coming off like a jerk. But mm. then if you're like, well, if she seems to be okay with it, maybe <laughs> yeah. we're maybe we're missing something. True. You know. Okay. All right. Well, you know, then he calls her in, like uh, the Sparknote summary said, calls her in for uh, for a conversation. He kind of distracts Adele with a present, also gets Mrs. Fairfax in to play with Adele and, and so that they both don't, won't bother him while he clearly just wants to talk to Jane and, mm-hmm. I guess, dig more into the way she thinks, which is, you know, referencing what you said earlier, I kind of feel like that might be an indication of why Mr. Rochester is interested in Jane because she doesn't kind of answer him the way that he would expect. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, she has a kind of a sad upbringing, but she's not quite who he thought she might be. Mm -hmm. And that's intriguing to him. Yeah. When we talk about, you know, women find themselves drawn towards men that are a little mysterious. Mm-hmm. It kind of works both ways, I yeah. guess. Men, men are drawn to women that they, they are not really getting what they expect from them. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily a situation where we feel like we can change them. Like no. You seem like that's a, that seems to be the woman's <laughs> thing. But there is, you know, I, I and, and it works both ways. I could see Jane coming up with some some excuse to hang out with Rochester at some, you know, I could oh, see yeah. it easily being the shoe on the other foot in this situation. Yeah, if Jane you had know. the the power to command Mr. Rochester to yeah. come talk, talk to her. Because <laughs> I'm sure if I look back through on my throughout my life, I'm sure there was probably some moments where I weaseled my way into a, a conversation with a girl that I liked or mm-hmm. found some way. You know, I will tell you a quick story. I'm very flattered by the fact that years ago I was working at a job and there were, one of my one of my friends was working with me. And he had a sister that I, I had a little crush on. And unbeknownst to me that she had a crush on me. And so she would often tell her parents, hey, can we go to the store to visit my brother? Mm-hmm. Even though she just, she would tell me later, she was like, I just wanted to find an excuse to oh. go to the store so I could see you. And it yeah. was just like, oh, really? Just that's me? <laughs> so I think maybe that's how Jane should be feeling in this chapter. It's like, what does he want with me? Oh, okay. And you just, mm-hmm. you brought me down here just so that, to show me Adele's present? Okay, great. <laughs> but then maybe she wasn't expecting that. Maybe that's kind of putting her off 
And so I think it's, and it, it kind of goes to something I was going to get into. I was going to mention it later, but I guess I can ask you now is that it seems like Jane is very passive in this chapter, mm. you know, for someone that has been so headstrong in the, the previous chapters. I don't know what happened there is like, she's, she's letting him do a lot of the talking. And then whenever he says something, she's just like, she's like, now I want you to talk. And he's just, she's like, okay, uh, give me a topic. It's like, she's not, she's not really <laughs> taking control. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't really see Jane as someone who would be very like converse very easily or especially with someone that she's not very familiar with, or she can just bring up topics and talk at length at him basically. Uh, so I, uh, I could see where there's kind of a change between young Jane and mature older Jane now where, you know, she's not going to be as expressive or passionate outwardly. Mm-hmm. She's still the same on the inside, but you don't really get that initially in these chapters because she's she's playing the part of a a good employee who who's, wants to, to do right. a good job and she wants to have the respect of the people around her. And again, she doesn't really know Mr. Rochester that well, so she doesn't know exactly what he wants. And mm. and also, yeah, like I think maybe she mentions it in this chapter where if she knew more about him, she would know what to talk about. True, true. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny that you say that because it's like um, I I feel the same way that maybe she's worried about upsetting her employer. Mm. But then at the same time, we were talking earlier about how like you were, you thought that she'd want to quit this job anyway. Oh, so, you know, not getting, anymore. She, no. Well, I guess now, nah, yeah. <laughs> now but, it's getting interesting. <laughs> but I think there's a, there's a moment later in the in the chapter where where when she's not talking or she's she doesn't want to continue the conversation, and he even says to her like he says the, the quote I have I wrote it down it's you are afraid your self love dreads a blunder, mm. and so it's yeah like it's 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 you're seeing this I don't want to say that we talk about the growth and maturity that comes from just realizing that he's not upset with her. But also, like, yeah, it, the, the character's kind of going on this upward path as far as the passionate, how headstrong. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. she's kind of she kind of dials it back for a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, I can see that. She's just, dialing it back. Yeah. But uh, she, you know, there's a lot of kind of banter and humor in this chapter, too, with their conversation. And I feel like that's also a, a sign of their, like, budding interest and the, the reason why they have this initial attraction is because they're having this sort of enjoyable conversation, even though Jane might not know what he's talking about and be a little confused. Uh, but Mr. Rochester, I think, is also enjoying himself. Yeah. She just wants to be there to listen. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I know you've been there. It's so funny. The more we read this, the more I, I'm starting to really understand why you like this book so much. Oh, perfect. The, how much How much <laughs> of the, the I see Jane in you. Yeah, okay. Where you're like, yeah. I'm not going to say anything to upset anybody. I'm just going to sit back and... <laughs> Yeah, I, that's, it's, it's, it's really, yeah. Well, uh. thank you for the compliment. <laughs> You're like, I am like Jane Eyre. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't say that, but you did. That's fine. I love, I love that. By my word, there's something singular about you. You have the air of a little nonette. Quaint, quiet, grave. You sit there, your hands before you, and your eyes generally bent upon the carpet. Except just now, when they were directed piercingly to my face. And when one asks a question or makes a remark to which you're bound to reply, you rap out a rejoinder, which, if not blunt, is at least brusque. What do you mean by it? Well, enough about Jane. I was going to ask you about Mr. Rochester for this chapter. It seems like the chapter itself kind of reminds me of the character in that it has a bit of a mood swing. It seems like Mm -hmm. in the first half of Rochester is much more charming, and then he kind of turns a little more, more bitter. You know, he's got baggage that he doesn't want to reveal, 
but is he also trying to gain sympathy or pity? You know, like is raising Adele supposed to make the reader respect him more? Hmm. Well, yeah, I think next chapter we should get more history about why, uh, who Adele is to him, why he took her in. But sympathy from Jane, I think maybe I could see that he could want that because he already, he knows what's what he did or his history. And he's kind of trying to feel out what she might think about him and what she might think about what he did too. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like in this chapter, you know, you do get the mood swings and, you know, Miss Rochester can be uh, kind of rude and um, arrogant, but the charm is that he is pretty open-minded or I should say he's more interested. He's so interested in what Jane's thinking about him Mm -hmm. and possibly about how she might help him become a better person. And it's such a weird thing for an employer to request of his employee. Uh, But, you know, for Jane, that's different and appealing, I guess. Yeah. And we kind of alluded to it in the last chapter as well that, you know, when he asked her about gifts and she says, generally thought Mm-hmm. To be go- and he was like generally thought what do you think mm-hmm. and so again has has like we said on the last time has Jane ever met somebody like that especially yeah. a man yeah especially a, a brooding man with dark eyes <laughs> yeah and I mean even though he is so temperamental he is pretty kind to Jane I think in this chapter sure. he could be a little rough with his words but he keeps telling her oh you know I, that's just because of this or that it's not because of you, yeah. you know? he does explain his behavior a lot yeah it was just, it's, it's it's weird to read a page and then see a paragraph of dialogue and see parentheses in it you know <laughs> where it's like what is that is that some sort of an aside is that an internal monologue or is it him just sort of sort of saying it under sort his own of, breath sort of an aside but vocally <laughs> yeah like it's it's sort of shakespearean uh He's like, I, have this, I have this one thought but let me just explain myself real quick here and then i'll get back to my thought yeah but you're right yeah you do bring up a good point that he does seem to try to whenever he always it's not it's not even an apology either it's, yeah it's more just like well i'm always i'm like this but you know no. It's not. It's not meant to be. Yeah. Mean or anything. Yeah. My bad. Basically. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I read a lot of these kinds of books. Do goth- you? Gothic, sort of romantic, and with the cover with the woman in a white dress running, running away from a yes. big house. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and Mr. Rochester fits this trope or this t- character type, which I wanted to talk about real quick um that he is a byronic hero and a not bi- a not a bionic hero I'm an, <laughs> i don't well i mean we haven't finished chapter yet that's but... true he could be a cyborg <laughs> it's kind of an anti-hero right basically yeah so doing a little bit of research byronic hero is a name given to a certain type of fictional character and he's named after the poet lord byron who charlotte bronte admired lord byron seem to embody this type of antihero that he wrote about and also lived. Uh, so there are many character traits that a Byronic hero embodies. He is proud, arrogant, cynical, but intelligent and capable of strong and deep affection. And they usually have a troubled past or loose morals, but they also have strong and sometimes noble reasons to do the things they do. Uh, usually this is because they can be conflicted and long-suffering, and I've often heard them described as a fallen angel type, and I, I think that fits them very well. Oh, fallen angel, okay. Yeah, so 
fallen angel or sort of bad boy types because uh, they're not just villains because they have some good noble intentions and sometimes they can end up doing something good in the end. Yeah. Yeah. So and trying to redeem themselves in some yeah, way, right? Yeah. I think that's the best, the best Byronic heroes, the, the ones that redeem themselves in the end. So some famous Byronic hero type characters in film and literature are Charlotte's sister, Emily Bronte's Heathcliff from Wuthering Heights. And Professor Snape and Harry Potter. I always loved Professor Snape. I figured you'd go with a Harry Potter reference. <laughs> I know that Snape is from your illustrious house, Slytherin. <laughs> yes, Slytherin. <laughs> and then also Captain Jack Sparrow from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, Mike, about any kind of Byronic hero types that you can think of. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, you're the literary one. I'm more cinematic. Mm-hmm. But I think Jack Sparrow is a good example, you know especially for the 21st century, because it seems like a lot of the those anti-heroes are more, especially in the 60s and 70s, or even before that. Mm-hmm. And that char- the Jack Sparrow character comes out, everyone loves him because he's so goofy and wacky, but then he's also, you know, he's not the most noble character, yeah. but yet people still like it's, him. And it's you fun s- to act, uh, see him act badly. Yeah. But then he does some good things sometimes. Yeah, and you can find it, you know, you can find yourself cheering for him. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you had asked me this question off the air and I, the first thing I always think of when I think of cinematic anti-heroes is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ah, it's a good example I've and not I, seen that film yeah it's it's a wonderful film and again these are real people mm-hmm. as we believe and the legend has always grown over the years right. and, you know and so they're 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 the titular characters of that movie and you're cheering for them but they are bank robbers yeah in, in, a, in a sense but they the way that movie is done and William Goldman's screenplay is, is just amazing because it kind of gives them depth and it makes you kind of cheer for them. Mm. Uh, I mentioned 60s and 70s. Obviously, in the 70s, you get uh, people like Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. is oh, a very, right. very... You know, I felt bad because you said when we had this conversation before we started recording, I would drop a bunch of names and you're like, I've never seen that. I've never seen that. I've never seen that. And it feels like yeah. I, I did a little research. I just kind of Googled like, oh, it's one of the most famous cinematic anti-heroes. And I'm like, oh, Charlene's never seen that one, that one. That no. one. Like, that's just because those are the, I know those are the kind of movies you don't necessarily like. Yeah. And I feel like romantic. Taxi Driver, I don't think I well, like it. <laughs> probably not. Romantic anti-heroes are more literary. It seems like there's not a lot of cinematic anti-heroes that are more romantic. They're more, oh, it's more like, it's more like action adventure type guys oh, hmm. you that's know interesting I, I guess i can't pull any right now but yeah. i feel like you know there that that uh the byronic hero or the anti-heroes is a fun romantic character trope that probably shows up in in films than more often than I, you know the bad boy types in films probably yeah the bad boys again the bad boys are a little more common in action adventures i think than <laughs> in some of those romance even another good example i know you you and your mother both, both appreciate film noirs i feel like the lead detective and a lot of these film noir movies mm-hmm. from Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade, you know, even Jake Giddies in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's that, not a lot of romance. Well, there's a little bit, but it's, it's, it's not, it's the women like them because they're, I guess, yeah, you're right. Maybe the women like them because they're a bad boy, even though they've, they, you, they have no business being with them. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to solve the case, <laughs> you know? And then if you get into like, like I said, I, I feel like in my generation, you get people like Han Solo Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Star Wars, that, that's a classic example of an anti-hero. Yeah. I think Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell's character from Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. Oh, that's a okay. you know he is a villain, but he's he's been asked to do something noble. Mm-hmm. Again, it's kind of a redemption. 
aspect. You know, I think one of the most famous ones is, is Michael Corleone from The Godfather, which again, I want uh, you to watch that movie I don't one of these care days. For mom movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny is if I may allow a little cross promotion for the other podcast that I do, which is mm-hmm. out of touchstone. Uh, we'll be watching all the Touchstone movies that Disney put out. The movie we just watched for t- the last Touchstone film we just watched was The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, and, and I, I was like... just thinking when I was uh, going through my notes here. Oh yeah, Jack Skellington, Jack Skellington. kind of be a Byronic hero. Yeah, he's he is kind of an antihero, and and I I feel because there's moments where he's the villain and the hero of that film. Mm-hmm. He has qu- these qualities of like a mad scientist, you know. And then the funny part was the the last movie that we watched, which was something that was produced by Disney's other live-action offshoot, Hollywood Pictures, was Tombstone. Now, I'll ask you, do you think Wyatt Earp is an oh, anti-hero? Yeah, yeah I He's a real so. person, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, because he, I mean, he does try to do the right thing. You don't get too much of his uh, history previous to what happens in Tombstone, but then he gets pulled in, and he goes on this whole vigilante justice thing where he's just killing everybody because they mm-hmm. killed his family, or he, they killed his brother, and... It, he does have a sort of a attractive quality, I think, too, because obviously there's a little bit of romance in that story, mm-hmm. and he has a, a interest in this woman, and she in him. So, and he wore, he's wearing he wears black through most of the movie too, which is <laughs> clear some, sign. Something you always think about in movies, especially westerns. You don't want the the villains to or the hero yeah, shouldn't wear black. That's and true. All the Earp brothers do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so you know, if you want to flip the genres, you can also look at Lindsay Wagner because she was the Byronic woman. Uh, I think we're bionic, looking at the wrong spelling. Woman, no. <laughs> All right. Before we before we go, and this is kind of fun. I appreciate you asking. I'm going to put one more on the spot, which I didn't tell you ahead of time because I want to get your honest reaction. Okay. Is the doctor an antihero? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, I I I can see that he has a uh, or she has mm-hmm. a troubled past mm-hmm. and fallen angel for sure. Oh, that's true. That's what I was thinking about. Not a weeping think, angel. I just think the doctor angel. always has good intentions and, and a very strong moral compass. And yeah. but you know, maybe maybe it's not fair to it's it's difficult to say because different doctors can have different attributes, and one doctor yeah. can be a little more darker than the other. Maybe mm-hmm. Chris Fagleston. Yeah, <laughs> and we don't know what happened. And Gallifrey mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. what, what you see, he's drawn a lot of enemies over, over his many yeah. years. And yeah. I, I, that kind of dawned on me as I was preparing to record the night. So I was like, yeah, I guess he does have that some. Is, that is a, a great question and definitely put me on the spot. Because yeah. that's something that I really have to think about. Because I, I feel like I can argue it both ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The doctors usually have, especially this, the new iterations of the doctors. I feel like mm-hmm. maybe, perhaps, of course, if you're, if you're listening at home and you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking, of course, about Doctor Who, oh, yes. the television series that we're Charlotte and I both big fans of. Both love. Uh, I feel like the Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor is not as much of no. the darker character. She's more of the noble, but then I could see David Tennant's 10th Doctor, yeah. see Capaldi's, Peter Capaldi's 12th Doctor. I could see them having the sort of darker side and you start, true. you have to understand do they have that troubled past? They're they're not romantic leads, not necessarily, right? Well, I, you know, you know, they really like to introduce some romance in these in this later uh, season. Yeah, but <laughs> we've talked a lot about the conversation between Jane and Rochester in this chapter, and I think we hinted at this in the previous episode of the podcast. But I thought I thought it would be interesting to learn more about the origin of Mister Rochester's character. There are theories about how Charlotte Bronte created him and, and who he's based on. I think you mentioned that maybe he, d- he didn't seem realistic before, but he is based 
well, I should say... She's based a lot of characters in this book on real people. Yeah, right? like her family or, you know, people that she came came into contact with at school. But Mr. Rochester, there's, there's a, there's a, there are a few theories about who he, who he's based on. And it's my personal belief that it's mainly two sources in Charlotte's life. And the first one is that as a teenager, Charlotte would write stories with her brother Branwell and also her sisters, but mostly with Branwell, um, that took place in this fictional land called Angria. And the stories formed very complex worlds full of romance and politics, and they had all these characters to them. And um, it was very, very personal to the Brontes, and Charlotte wrote many stories in this world. And through the years, she evolved a character that was initially the Duke of Wellington's son, and he was later called the Duke of Zamorna, or Zamorna for short. And I haven't read a lot of Charlotte's Juvenalia, but from what I've seen of Zamorna, he has many personality traits that we will see in Mr. Rochester. The Branwell can take a, get a little credit for Rochester. Inspiring, well. yeah, I yeah. Think that's probably true, yeah. And then in then the other source that I feel probably bears a lot of weight of Mr. Rochester is um, it comes from the time in 1842, which was five years before Jane Eyre was published when Charlotte and Emily traveled to Brussels in Belgium, and they wanted to improve their French, so they went to this boarding school run by Constantine Heger and his wife. And Charlotte spent uh, a little more time there than Emily did because um, their aunt died and Emily went back, or they both went back to kind of deal with that, and then Charlotte came back by herself uh, to uh, learn more, and then also she became an English teacher there. She developed some feelings for Monsieur Heger, and this only became widely known years later when the letters she wrote him surfaced in 1913, which is incredible, you know, that mm. uh, probably it would be even surprising today if, if new things surfaced that came from the Brontes. I wonder if she got her the, the title character from this book from him. Would it have been too obvious if she would have named him Jane Heger? <laughs> oh, it rhymes, huh? I, I don't know. I, I, there are other um, reasons or theories about where she got the name Jane. Uh, as Jane is Emily's uh, middle name, Emily Bronte's mm. middle name. Air, mm-hmm. uh, I think people have said, oh, that there was a house nearby with the family name Air, so she maybe have known, known about that name. Hage Air. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, this this is a obviously a very difficult situation for Charlotte to be in school with this man who's married and she's having all these feelings for him. Um, and she, when she left, eventually she left the school and went back to Haworth. She would write letters to him and apparently he responded, but his letters were infrequent and none of them survive today, apparently. Um, so we don't really know what he said, but from her letters, it did seem like she had a lot of, um, strong emotions. She didn't actually say, Mm. you know, she loves him or anything, but, it's very impassioned how she talks to him about how much these letters mean to her and wanting to hear from him. And the reason they were discovered so late was because these letters were torn up by Monsieur Heger, but it had seemed that his wife got them out of the trash and taped them together and kept them. (laughs) And then the children were the ones who still had them. And then the newspaper at the time was able to get a hold of them and publish them. And hmm. that's how they were known. And I assume that Heger was 
not significantly older than her, but you yeah, know, Charlotte would have been in her mid twenties, and Ingrid mm-hmm. would have been, I guess, was he around forty-ish? I think he was a few years older, maybe seven years, I think. So, you know, since Hager was a real person, I thought that he does have some qualities that are similar to Rochester. And one is that he's not generally thought to be handsome. Uh, He was gruff and abrupt and kind of a demanding teacher, but he encouraged Charlotte's writing and his praise was very much sought after by her. He cared cared what she thought. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And he was very intelligent and generous to others. And Charlotte, I'll just drop in this quote. Charlotte described him in a letter and she said, He is a professor of rhetoric, a man of power as to mind, but very choleric and irritable in temperament, a little black being with a face that varies in expression. Sometimes he borrows the lineaments of an insane tomcat and sometimes those of delirious hyena. Occasionally, but very seldom, he discards these perilous attractions and assumes an air not above 100 degrees removed from mild and gentlemanlike. Yeah, that's Rochester. <laughs> like a hyena and a insane tomcat. Tomcat, yeah. <laughs> it's very strong. Irritable in temperament. Uh-huh. <laughs> Kept asking Charlotte, do you find me handsome? <laughs> yeah, so that's a very famous line from this book. I think people really like it. It's kind of a funny line. And I have a surprise for <gasps> our listening audience. What did you find, Charlene? We have an old audition tape from the 1943 film adaptation that starred Jan- Joan Fontaine as Jane Eyre. Mm-hmm. And surprise, but there was an actor who also wanted to play Mr. Rochester. He sent in an audition tape. And I can't believe it, but it is actually Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart? Yeah, he wanted to play Rochester. Uh, yeah, I mean, he would. his career would have been kind of on the upswing. This was a couple of years before mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life. Wow, I'm so curious to hear it. Can we run that? Yeah, let's play it right now. Right this way, Mr. Stewart. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mr. Robert Stevenson, director. I'm a a big fan of King Solomon's Mines. Glad to be here. Also a big fan of the Bronte sisters. That uh, Rochester character. I'm a big... I hope I get this part. I love a good Byronic hero. Uh... So what do we got? Just just the one line it is, huh? Okay. Uh let me let me get my faculties about me. Here we go. You examine me, Miss Eyre. Do you think me handsome? Is that is that you want do it again? No, is that that's good? Okay. Okay. Oh oh I guess that'll be good. Okay. I guess I'll hear from you later. Just do me a favor. Don't give this part to that Orson Wells fella. He's kind of a hack. Wow, wow, I can't believe they, they kept that footage. They, they hold on to that. that what amazing. I, I, that's, I, I don't even want to know how you came across that show. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to say we had to uh, part with some of our savings for that. <laughs> it's in our podcast budget. Uh, though, but uh, Jimmy Stewart what, might have made a... I honestly think might have made a pretty good Mr. Rochester. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I looked it up. He would have been about thirty-five at the time. Okay, uh, this not is, bad. This was done. So, and funny thing is, he's he was eight years older than Orson Welles. Yeah, you think Orson Welles was too young for the age role. Age appropriate. Yeah. Well, thank you to my lovely husband who uh, actually played the part of Jimmy Stewart. No idea what you're talking about. <laughs> So now we're going to go into our 
last segment of the episode where we talk about our meaningful, favorite meaningful passage or quote. So Mike, go ahead and lay it on me. Okay. Well, my, my quote actually comes from the very end of the book. You know, we've had, I guess we've had this roller coaster mm. of emotions in this chapter where it's yeah. like, like I said, it starts out, he's kind of charming. Then he gets into all the backstory about Celine you know, and you're wondering like, what's okay. His, his, uh, what do we say? His mood swings mm-hmm. and all that. And so he started again, he's starting to draw interest in Jane, but he's also a little drunk. <laughs> so he almost chastises her for not being a little bit more open with him. You know, he mm. says, he jokes with her like, do you, do you, do you never laugh? And oh, he yeah. says like, your the low wood constraint still clings to you. And so he still wants to get the best out of her. And so he ends with this line, which I really liked in his quote. But in time, I think you will learn to be natural with me as I find it impossible to be conventional with you. And then your looks and movements will have more vivacity and variety than they dare offer now. I see at intervals the glance of a curious sort of bird through the close set bars of a cage. A vivid, restless, resolute captive is there. Were it but free, it would soar cloud high. Such a romantic line, I think, because he's really seeing into Jane and sees the potential in her. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, beautiful. Bird, another bird reference. And another bird reference, of course. Yeah. And I mean, again, I wonder if it's a situation where he can tell that she's probably this shy, mousy type person. And, you know, yes, we mentioned how gruff he is, but it's so, you know, and he does, like I said, he doesn't quite apologize, but he sort of tries to explain away his behavior. And now he's saying, you know, come along with follow the come along the ride with me, yeah, and and I'll you know, I'll get you out of that shell, yeah. Yeah, and it's just it's just very thoughtful of him. I think he is her employer, but he has thought about her mm-hmm. and kind of revealing a little more of his personality than he might wish. Yeah, and this is you don't you don't want to build this love story up too quickly, so I'll give Charlotte a little credit there. So it's just slowly. One at a time. I mentioned before peeling back the onion, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's kind of slowly getting to it. So I kind of like that. Uh, what is your most meaningful passage from this chapter? Well, uh, we are on episode 15, chapter 14 here, and uh, we picked the same quote. <laughs> it finally but happened. I said it was going to happen at some point. You know, the funny, the funny thing was before we recorded, I said there was there was three quotes that I was choosing from. Yeah. And I narrowed it down and that was the one that I actually went with. So. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I... I obviously really like that quote, and I think, again, it's very, very romantic. So, great choice, Mike. I can honestly say that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. This really helps us grow and reach new listeners. If you want to talk Jane Eyre with me online, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at airguide. That's E-Y-R-E. And if you want to hear more from me, I host my own podcast called Out of Touchstone, where my good friend Chad and I discuss all the films that Disney produced for their Touchstone Pictures label. You can also find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. Thank you, and farewell for the present.